Hello everyone, this is Philosophy of the People with Ben Burgess and Stephen Bertram, and I'm very, very tired. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I am, uh, I am less tired. I, you know, I don't know how interesting this is to anybody. I don't actually sleep that much most nights, but it sounds like I slept more than you last night. <laughs> no, I mean, in the end, I got like six hours, so it was just, it just started at 5 a.m. Okay. And, and not to, to the chat because I'm I was having a wild Saturday night because I was just lying in my in my bed with a with an aching ear. Um, uh, but in in slightly less irritating news, um, <laughs> you wrote an essay featuring Leon Trotsky today. Yeah, uh, I just, I don't know. I'm, I was actually hoping for significantly less irritated news. Uh, but yeah, no, I I did. Uh, so this is you know the issue that the essay is about is the relationship of dialectics or the dialectical method dialectical analysis uh these might or might not all be equivalent terms to uh to marx's thought and uh in you know exploring that i talked about the uh, the views of various marxist and Marxist issue adjacent figures uh, on this topic, and uh, and Trotsky features as somebody who um, stakes out kind of an extreme position on one end of the the spectrum and of this of this methodological debate, right? That's that's really what I take it to be a debate about that you know is this um, you know is the role of dialectics, these like categories that are uh, inherited from Hegel to Marx um, and, you know, transformed by Marx, uh, is this just kind of um, like an eccentricity of Marx's background that, you know, he was kind of intellectually reared uh, using this terminology, so he just kind of kept using it, but it doesn't really, you know, it, it doesn't really in any essential way tell us very much about uh, the, the content of Marxism. That's like one end of one end of the spectrum of views you can have about this. Or uh, is Marxism like incomprehensible without this, that this is like this, this sort of essential thing that, you know, that structures everything, you know, that's the other end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, my own view, just put cards on the table is, is you know, somewhere, um, somewhere in between those. What's that? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Ish, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so yes, I, I I do have this kind of boringly centrist uh, view on this this question, but you know, it, I think it, you know, I hope uh, it becomes more interesting, you know, as we sort of explore what the options are and and why some of the standard options don't make sense. I should also say that there is going to be a follow-up next week that kind of uh, goes into a bit more detail about why I don't really buy the first of those two views that I just laid out, the, the sort of like, um, this is um, this is just look. Uh, well, so I, I actually quote in the essay uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty, who has the sort of most extreme formulation of this view that I've ever seen from anybody uh, in his essay, Spectre ha Haunting Intellectuals, uh, on Marx and Derrida, where he says uh, that, um, he says that, you know, the, um, 
it's just a pity that the best political economist of the 19th century uh, majored in philosophy in college and never quite got over it. Like, I, so that, I, I didn't get that much out of this essay, I think, largely due to my own condition, but that was a heater. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like Rorty's like Rorty's taking out the most extreme position you could take about the relationship between, um, you know, Marxist thought and these dialectical categories. And then um, the, and, you know, so again, the, the one next week is going to go into a bit more detail about why I don't buy that. I think I say a couple of things in this one that sort of maybe suggest why I don't buy it. Uh, but, uh, but I'm going to get much more into that next week. Uh, but, you know, what I spent much more time on talking about this week was the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, which is, uh, Lev Davidovich, uh, Bronstein, better known as, um, who is, you know, somebody who I, I read quite a bit of his stuff, uh, earlier in, uh, in my life, um, you know, I I kind of started out politically as a socialist, you know, as uh, a trot, as they say. Uh, that happens you know, to lots of people, not me though. What's that? Happens to lots of people, not me though. Yeah, yeah, does happen to lots of people. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, the the uh, the socialist left is sort of swimming with people who uh, started out that way and then and then kind of diverged from it in one direction or another. Um, and, you know, for that matter, lots of parts of the political spectrum other than the socialist left have their share of those people. But um, in any case, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking here, for example, of, uh, uh, you know, my uh, ideological friend, Amesor Abubari, who, uh, you know, who's who's a, who's an ex-trot. I think he used to be in socialist alternative uh, once upon a time. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I read a lot of Trotsky at one time and, um, you know, Trotsky is such a good writer and is, um, you know, just, just as kind of a pro stylist and, you know, he is very, very smart. And so, you know, it's very easy to read Trotsky and just kind of get swept up with the, the flow of uh, the writing and kind of not analyze it the way that you would. Uh, if you were just, you know, reading something by any other thinker, and it's like, okay, does this make sense? Does this actually follow from what he said before? Why, why am I supposed to believe that? Uh, and, um, you know, I make some effort to to do more of that uh, in this case. So, um, and, and, you know, there is also this interest in kind of political context to why Trotsky is writing about this in the first place, although I think it's also kind of very confusing, right? This is something that's, a big part of the, um, you know, I don't know, it's, it's kind of the, uh, the mythos of Trotskyism uh, is this faction fight uh, where Trotsky is writing uh, these two essays that I'm quoting uh, in here. Uh, but also I, I think kind of the, the more you know about it, like the more you think about it, the stranger it is that anybody in this context is, is arguing about dialectics at all. But, you know, just to, you know, I, I, bring up, you know, Rorty and Trotsky uh, as conceptual bookends of this methodological debate about Marx and dialectics, because, you know, Rorty has this extreme position on one end, and then Trotsky has uh, exactly the opposite uh, position, uh, which is, you know, he has this famous phrase, uh, 
in one of these essays, uh, Marxism without the dialectic is uh, is like a clock without a spring, uh, which is, uh, you know, I, I think a good example of the vividness of Trotsky's writing. Uh, also, just for fun, I, uh, uh, I didn't have a chance to work this into the essay, but I remember many years ago uh, reading a memoir called The Prophet's Children by a guy named Tim Woolforth, uh, who is, uh, so you may know, uh, probably one of the worst people who never held state power that the uh, Marxist left has ever produced is a guy named Jerry Healy in the UK. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or familiar which, with him. Which, which, what's his flavor? Uh, he was the founder of the Workers' Revolutionary Party, uh, whose uh, most whose most famous cadre was uh, one Vanessa Redgrave, uh, famous for reasons other than her politics. But uh, in any case, um, he was you know he's something of a cult leader basically, and uh, in. Uh, in any case, the American franchise of his group uh, was something called the Workers League, which uh, later turned into the Socialist Equality Party, and essentially later turned into the World Socialist website. Uh, so, oh, which really with, right? Uh, very, very, you know, famous kind of. Uh, we need to defend that American nonce, whatever his name is, the actor or the director. Oh yeah, yeah, the uh, uh, Polanski. Yeah, yeah, the Polanski people. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, my own my own Polanski position is that he should probably be in prison, but that he should have some kind of work release program so he could continue to make movies. Uh, so it's you know. I mean, it's all too late for the moment, isn't it? He's like ninety or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's very old, but yes, I, I do I do actually think uh, I I disagree uh, with them about this. I I do. Uh, I do tend to think that he uh, he's pretty guilty, but uh, the uh, but he is you know I mean I love Rosemary's Baby Chinatown you know good movies, but uh, in any case um, yeah so uh, so Wolferth uh, was the head of the essentially American branch of this and ended up having to falling out with Healy and that's a lot of what the book is about. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is because there's a scene in that book where he is traveling to Cuba. And he meets this like uh, Cuban Trotskyist who was, um, uh, you know, was like a supporter of the revolution, but was still in prison for a while, and you know, blah blah blah. And uh, he and uh, he introduces this Cuban Trotskyist introduces Wolfworth to his children, who have these incredibly strange sounding names. And then he realized that they're acronyms that he named his kids after the, like the acronyms of these famous Trotsky quotes. And I remember one of them is the Marxism without dialectics right. is, uh, is like a clock without a spring, whatever that's, you know, that makes is an acronym. That's one of the, this guy's kids names. Um, but yeah, in uh, this, um, so the, the context of, of Trotsky saying this, was this debate with these guys, Max Shackman and uh, James Burnham. And um, and this is something that uh, I talk about this in more depth than I'm able to in this essay in a chapter of my first book, Give Them an Argument. But um, 
essentially uh, both Shackman and Burnham would later uh, go to the right. Burnham kind of immediately, you know, he kind of had like a road to Damascus level political conversion like the next year. Uh, but, you know, Shackman in a sort of complicated way that was never quite complete. I think, you know, that it was like sort of very slowly over the course of decades, you know, the he kind of ended up life as like a pretty mediocre sort of, uh, you know, social Democrat with, with shitty foreign policy views. Uh, but um, in any case, uh, the, the fact that these guys both drifted to the right is widely taken um, by people in the Trotsky's tradition as vindication that, you know, they were wrong about everything. And, you know, Trotsky was right about everything in this faction fight in 1939 since um you know i mean who knows where trotsky would have ended up if he didn't end up dead it's also very true right uh yeah i mean and it's 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 all very you know this this whole game that people play with like read it you know here's where people politically drifted later in life therefore they were wrong in the earlier thing it's it's always like very strange and selective right because you know you always start the clock after the point where they agreed with you Right. That that's the uh, the first disagreement with you is like the first sign where they, you know, that they'd started to go wrong and were inevitably going to end up as horrible reactionaries. Uh, the fact that they agreed with you was never part of the progression in that direction. But in any case, uh, so so they ended up these people uh, or, you know, Burnham, certainly at least was, you know, fighting with Trotsky about two distinct issues, one of which makes sense for them to have fought about the other, of which is sort of an odd fit with the first subject, but it kind of got mixed in in this debate. So uh, the main political subject, which makes sense, is essentially the Hitler-Stalin pact in 1939, uh, which was sort of a crisis in Trotskyism because Trotsky's analysis of the Soviet Union um, was that it was a degenerated worker state, which roughly means that um, it had you know, it was a worker state. So it was, you know, worker state is supposed to be part of, you know, a sort of a transitional form between capitalism and socialism. And it had, uh, it had achieved this historic breakthrough by transcending capitalist property relations. But at the same time, um, it had been, uh, and, you know, that breakthrough had never been undone, even though it had been taken over by this like sort of layer of bureaucrats who, in many ways acted like a new ruling class. Um, but Trotsky still thought that there was like kind of a, um, that there was, you know, there was sort of a redeemable socialist court to the Soviet state that could be, um, that, you know, that if there was some sort of future process in which the Stalinist bureaucrats were ousted, you know, there was like still something salvageable there. And, um, and as such, you know, he thought that Western socialists should have a fundamentally different attitude towards the USSR than they did towards capitalist states, that the revolution had been badly compromised, but it still needed to be defended against uh, its many enemies. And so, uh, you know, essentially in wars involving the Soviet Union, you should root for the Soviet Union, uh, not like just kind of take a pox on both their houses attitude like you would. Toward, uh, towards wars between capitalist states, right? That's Trotsky's position. But then the Hitler-Stalin pact comes along and, 
you have this very odd spectacle of uh, the worker state, uh, I suppose, spreading the revolution to a bunch of Eastern European, uh, like, you know, these like Baltic states and uh, trying to do it in Finland that uh, didn't actually want, uh, didn't actually want them there. And so it's like, okay, so this, you know, Soviet Union is conquering these places against the will of their populations and with the diplomatic support of the Third Reich, uh and um you know shackman and burnham kind of balked at the idea that they should be supporting that and um and this this kind of led them to to rethink the idea that the soviet union was still a degenerated worker state as opposed to maybe being like some horrible new form of a class society right that's that's roughly it's, it's a theoretical thing. It feels a bit strange, but surely like 18 months after they started writing stuff, they're like, oh, well, actually, the Malta River part is over. And yeah, yeah. The Soviet Union at war, and the Baltic states, like, did a Nazi uprising of their own before the Germans arrived, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I guess by that time, it's, uh, you know, by that time, it'd be embarrassing to say, never mind. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Sorry, by the way, that all the, the artillery fire seems to be picking up on the microphone. Uh, we're celebrating the killing of Guy Fawkes at the moment here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's been remember. intense fireworks the whole day. Ah, yeah. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Yeah. Uh, I saw that big, movie. Big, big parliamentary holiday. Yeah. Um, yeah, have a nice, uh, have some nice, you know, national, you know, have a beautiful moment of national unity, burn some Catholics. The, the, the day we defeated Catholic absolutism for like the 12th time. There you go. Uh, uh <laughs> yeah, I do have to admit, I, I, uh, I often forget that this is a holiday over there. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, in, um, in any case, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. Uh, so this is a good question. So Burnham had already had his big political switch, I guess, by the time, uh, you know, Operation Barbarossa started. So it was sort of irrelevant to him. Um, in, he was like, now Britain supports the Soviet Union, so I can't be friends with them either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what his position. I, I mean, presumably he would just, he just like, supported the you know the war for uh uh standard you know patriotic reasons at that point but in um but shackman uh i think stuck to his guns and just sort of you know basically thought like um you know world war ii was just world war one again um you know which is was in a complicated way was sort of the position of the mainstream Trotskyists, except for that they had to say, essentially, except for the bits of the war that are about the Soviet Union, uh, you know, which is um, kind of, you know, an interesting mental exercise, I guess, how much you can detach, uh, you know, it all being one big war. But mm-hmm. um, in any case, uh, that's uh, so. So, yeah, that, that was what kind of sparked all of this in, in the first place. But then there's this totally unrelated philosophical issue that um, kind of got mixed up in it because in 1938, Burnham had written this essay criticizing dialectical materialism. Uh, I, I have actually read this. I didn't, I didn't read it again for when I was writing this, but I read it when I was writing the chapter in the book. 
And um, I, I think, you know, I think Burnham's kind of confused. I mean, he was a, Burnham was, I think, a philosophy professor at NYU, actually, uh, but he was, I, I don't think, um, I, I think he was like a little glib about the whole dialectics issue. Uh, he, I don't know, like that he had a sort of particularly, um, you know, nuanced understanding of all this. Uh, I, I kind of say in the chapter of the book, look, everybody in this debate is just kind of confused. But uh, I mean, it, Trotsky really seems to go to a position he had no need to go to, uh, which we'll, we'll get to soon, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 for sure, right? Uh, like, like I actually think in a way Trotsky is even more confused than Burden is on this. But in, um, but yeah, so uh, so so roughly, uh, they, you know, Trotsky seizes on Burnham having criticized the idea of dialectical logic or dialectical method or whatever it's supposed to be as sort of, you know, he kind of seized on that in the context of this, uh, this faction fight over geopolitics. And it was like, aha, see, that's why they're coming to the wrong political conclusions that they're undialectical because, uh, because they've, they've rejected the method that's at the heart of Marxist analysis, and so all of Trotsky's followers, the American SWP, have to start writing little essays about dialectics, you know, to uh, you know, to show that they're on the right side of this. And uh, and so Trotsky, uh, it's, it's actually not the one where he has the clock without a spring line. That's the that one's the petty bourgeois opposition in the Socialist Workers Party. But uh, he has this other essay that's like kind of more or less exclusively about this topic. Uh, called the ABCs of materialist dialectics, and in there, you know, he argues in favor of again what you know he understands as dialectical materialism uh, in this very strange way where he's he's just committed himself to things that it just seemed kind of incredible to me that you know you'd you'd have to be committed to 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 say what he wants to. To say, but I mean, maybe this is a good time to kind of pause on all these details and just sort of back up and be like, okay, what exactly is it that we're supposed to be arguing about when we're arguing about dialectics? Because I'm not sure you ever did this in the essay. Not really, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I kind of go in sort of assuming that people, um, you know, it's yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do assume at least a sort of vague familiarity with, you know, with with the concept. Yeah, but I think kind of the problem with dialectics, especially, is that people have like a vague understanding of it, or, or they feel like they have quite a strong understanding, but they'll be like so far apart from what you mean and what a third person means. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So there is there is a lot of, um, you know, I, I suspect that if you took maybe even members of like exactly the same Marxist sect and interviewed them in separate rooms. Them, consulting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ask them to explain exactly what they meant, you know, by, by dialectics, you know, um, you know, you might get some interestingly different answers um, because, you know, we can say like there is, yeah, I mean, 
it it does seem like people often mean very different things. Uh, I suspect, you know, so this this essay was inspired by a conversation with a student during the last session of my uh, Marx Proudhon class, and um, one of the things I said in that discussion is I think a lot of Marxists have a bad habit of sort of attributing anything that feels kind of esoteric and profound to them to uh to to dialectics um yeah yeah I mean, that's how how like i jokingly use the word if there's like yeah. an interaction between two things and it's not really clear what the interaction is or how we could explain it i'll just say dialectics oh yeah it's dialectical uh yeah yeah exactly right so um so yeah it, it's very um i think uh so yeah, I mean, the fact that it's so unclear is a big part of the problem. Um, you know, probably go into some of this a little bit more next week, but roughly, you know, you get uh, Hegel, um, you know, and there's a very, very long tradition leading up to Hegel, of course, that he's like, pull, you know, pulling on different threads of, but uh, just to, you know, just to, to stick with Hegel, uh, talking about contradictions and uh, in a way where, like, he's, he's using that word in a very different way than it's used in a lot of past tradition, right? So, um, you know, like, certainly the main thing that's, that's, that people mean when they use the word contradiction is like a logical contradiction. You're saying but, something that's inconsistent. You know, you're saying but, A is true, and you're also saying uh, not A is true. Bloody hell. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and in, um, but, so, like, a contradiction is a bad thing. And Hegel's way of using the word, uh, it's just sort of, you know, uncovering the, the contradictions uh, is a matter of finding something that actually is there, uh, that there, there is, so it's, it seems to be, and, you know, there, I already know, um, that there'll be comments on this stream saying that I'm explaining this completely wrong, uh, see above for why, but, uh, it, it, it seems to be that, you know, when Hegel, and then certainly when Mark's picking up this kind of terminology from Hegel, uh, uses the term contradiction. Um, sometimes it's used in a way it's a little bit more like that logical sense, but uh, oftentimes it means seems to be used to mean something more like dynamic tensions uh, within complicated realities. And in uh, I think especially and, with, with with Marx, it feels like it's you know the kind of stuff which digs out the, the things in the structure which dig, which dig out the structure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, and, and in particular, um, so oftentimes people will use this terminology, which it turns out Hegel never actually did, uh, the, about, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, uh, um, that, you know, even, you know, so, you know, the contradiction between the thesis and the antithesis, uh, leads to the synthesis, Again, Hegel doesn't actually talk that way, 
Uh, some people have found it useful as a way of thinking about it, but certainly, uh, but certainly the idea seems to be that whatever contradictions are, these are things that sort of unfold over the course of time, therefore, you know, thereby giving rise to new things that, you know, have their own contradictions that need to be worked out, et cetera. Um, so one idea that some people have had about this, um, kind of on the most extreme end of the spectrum, although, you know, and this seems to be some of what Trotsky is ultimately defending, uh, is the idea that, well, you know, because sort of standard logic from Aristotle onwards, um, you know, thinks, you know, something called contradictions are bad, they're false, um, and, you know, and, and when Hegel and Marx, you know, when you talk about contradictions, uh, you're talking about uh, these, these real things. Uh, therefore, there's something called dialectical logic that's in competition with, like, I don't know, classical logic, Aristotelian logic, something like that. And, um, and these are, these are two like competing views that, uh, that they disagree with each other. Um, they, and, don't, you know, they don't just disagree a little bit. They disagree on like really fundamental things. Yeah. They disagree in this absolutely fundamental way, foundational way. And sometimes people will make a move here. Uh, Trotsky, I don't quote this part, but you know, he, he sort of, has a couple of stabs in this direction about like, well, okay, maybe sort of standard logic is okay for some things, the way that Newtonian physics is kind of fine if we're dealing with you know mid-sized dry goods, right? But uh, you know, you want to do the real shit, right? You know, then then you need, you know, dialectical logic instead of uh, standard logic. Um, so that's that's one view. And and there were uh, I don't really think that there's a lot of textual evidence that Marx thought anything like that, certainly. Um, but, you know, or Hegel for that matter, but the, uh, but. Um, no, it, it, it just seems kind of like a, an unnecessary, like suicide mission done in does. service of guys who wouldn't want you to do it anyway. Yeah, 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 exactly. But like, again, there were, there were like Soviet, like, you know, dialectical logic textbooks, you know, people would like really try to run with this idea um but yes it it seems that seems like a a very uh a very misguided idea um on and then there's a lot of sort of fuzzier ideas that sort of fall a little bit short of that but it's often unclear how far short they're trying to fall which is like well okay maybe it's not like a you know even like even though logical terminology is used, and this is a lot of what I was arguing for in the Githman argument chapter, even though some of the same words like contradiction are being used, they're just obviously being used in these completely different ways. Right. So the claims that are being made with each aren't in conflict with each other. It's all completely compatible. But uh, but maybe even if it's not you know a alternative logic exactly, maybe this is at least this sort of distinctive method for. Um, analyzing social reality possibly reality in general Engels uh seemed to, to be quite friendly to the idea of like that this applies to like everything right uh, the uh, and uh and it's this method of doing that that's just like totally different from other methods of analysis in some sense so uh in the essay i quote david harvey 
uh, who, you know, his his lectures in Capital, which I like, I, I, you know, I think they're useful. People should listen to them. But uh, in his lectures on Capital, there's a point in the early one of the early ones where I remember him sort of saying, well, these analytic Marxists, these J.A. Cohen types, you know, they want to do uh, Marxism without the dialectics. But um, and that's fine. But, you know, you really want to understand Marx. You, know, you have to understand dialectics, which so far I'm OK with what everything Harvey has said. But then uh, more or less, you know, we can nitpick. But I think, you know, the, the thrust of it seems fine to me. And then he he says things like uh, there are several points when I was listening to those lectures where he says things like, well, you know, Marx isn't giving causal explanations. He's giving dialectical explanations. And, and that really made me want to, you know, throw the phone. I was, I was listening to the lecture against, with against the wall because it's like, what does that mean? Right. What could that even mean? Right. And the, this this idea, um, you know, like see, certainly seems to be that, um, you know, that somehow or another being dialectical, having the special dialectical method of analysis sort of frees you up from having to to ground your analysis and sort of standard kinds of cause and effect uh, explanations and mechanisms which which seems also very badly misguided to me. I mean, I think if you're going to say that something is is true, right? You're going to you're going to say that it happens. Then I think you do actually owe it to us to have an explanation of in you know with in standard cause and effect terms of like, okay, well, but why does that happen, right? How does it work, you know? Um, so in all of which again might suggest um, you know that uh, might suggest more sympathy than I actually have for the like Rorty kind of end of the spectrum. Um, again, see more about that next week. But I mean, I, I, I don't like, I actually don't even, I actually don't even really like what Cohen says about this in the introduction to the 2000 edition of Karl Marx's theory of history, where um, I don't, I don't know that he's necessarily completely wrong, but I think he, I think, I think it lacks nuance. Uh, which is a very uncharacteristic problem for uh, for a Cohen take, you know. Uh, you know, usually uh, usually he really gets into the like all the granular, you know. Here are ten things you could take this to mean, and you know, here are the problems with nine of them or whatever. Um, but this, in the context, it's the introduction. He's been very quick and programmatic, and uh, he sort of says, "Well, I don't think that there's this distinctive dialectical method." And it's like, okay, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with that. It depends what you mean. But like he, the way he puts it seems very dismissive of the idea that there's some sort of particular value to talking this way or thinking this way, or that there are maybe insights that you know you're more likely to be attuned to if mm -hmm. you uh, if you do, which I also think is is a mistake, right? So there's a um, the you know the out of what I've seen, you know, the kind of takes I've seen about this, the uh, the one that seems uh, that seems sort of most plausible to me is um, f uh, this book, uh, Reconstructing Marxism. Uh, I don't remember if he mentioned it when he was on uh, he was on our show, but uh, one of my conversations with Tibor Rutar, uh, he uh, he mentioned this book. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's by. Eric Olin Wright, who's like one of the classic core, like analytic Marxist people. Um, Steve? Somebody Levine, uh, who I'm otherwise unfamiliar with, 
uh, and um, Elliot Sober. Uh, and I was really shocked when my friend Kale Brooks recommended this book to me, you know, before T-Bar brought it up. Uh, you know, I was really shocked to see Elliot Sober's name on this because he's like a, a, a big deal analytic philosopher of science who um, I remember hearing lots about, you know, when I was in graduate school and I had no idea who's even interested in Marxism, which maybe says something about the politics of that corner of academia at that time um, that, you know, it, it might have sort of by then it might have kind of been viewed as like this oddball eccentricity of his that he was interested in this, but obviously it has nothing to do with his like real contributions. Um, but in any case, this book Reconstructing Marxism uh, is uh, I think a very good book. I've been I'm working through it and they have this um, uh, and uh, yeah, actually been doing like a, you know, IRL uh, reading group at a bar near where I live in LA with a couple of people uh, going through that book. And there's a part of it where they say, um, uh, so here's the quote, consider, for example, the idea that Marx's theory in contrast to his rivals is dialectical. It is notoriously unclear what this widely reported claim means. The additional assurance that Marx somehow set the dialectic on its feet hardly helps, and neither do other characterizations that commentators have preferred. Aficionados can, of course, identify and produce dialectical explanations. Arguably, Marx himself did precisely that. Moreover, it does seem that the skillful use of dialectical metaphors can serve worthwhile heuristic purposes. Uh, other words, could help you see things you'd otherwise miss. But it is one thing to be fluent in a suggestive idiom, something else to deploy a distinctive methodology. They go on. This is not to say that all the specific elements traditionally subsumed under the expression Marxist method should be rejected out of hand. The point is that in order to be useful, such elements have to be translated into a language of causes, mechanisms, and effects, rather than left as elusive philosophical principles. Take the notion of a contradiction, a key element of the purported dialectical method. One way of explicating this conventional causal language is to treat a contradiction as a situation in which there are multiple there are multiple conditions for the reproduction of a system which cannot all be simultaneously satisfied. Uh, alternatively, a contradiction can be viewed as a situation in which the unintended consequences of a strategy subvert the accomplishment of its intended goals. Or finally, a contradiction can be viewed as an underlying social antagonism that produces conflict. If a social relation has certain properties which have an intrinsic uh, tendency to generate conflict, uh, one might say that the conflict is generated by a contradiction. There may be advantages or disadvantages to each of these formulations. In all these cases, however, contradiction is not treated as a philosophically driven way of interpreting the essence of a process, but as a way of explicating the interactions among a set of causal mechanisms. This kind of translation of an element of Marx's method into a language of causal mechanisms is essential if the explanations generated using the elements are to be scientifically intelligible. And to me, like, I, I think this is the, uh, you know, this is the, uh, the the bowl of dialectics porridge that's just right. Uh, that uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that like the way that they're, they're handling it here, it's not just like, oh, this is just some sort of like Hegelian gobbledygook that like Marxism is better off just being cleansed from, um, which, you know, 
is certainly the the Rorty view and and Cohen at his most polemical gets closer to it than I'd like, even if he's never quite there. Uh, but it's also not um, this is this distinctive method of discovering the truth that um, you know is somehow different from what everybody else is doing when they're making arguments and examining evidence and trying to come up with cause and effect mm -hmm. mechanisms and all of that stuff. Never mind that this is something that's like totally at odds with like you know, the, the fundamental assumptions of standard logic that statements can't be inconsistent and true and, you know, th things like that, right? So, so I'm, yeah, I, I, I think I'm more or less on team uh, right living and, and sober on this, that kind of in-between view about contradictions. And, you know, I, I don't have, I don't, you know, that like, yes, this is, you know, this actually can be a useful way of talking, that like kind of deploying this idiom can actually um, help you to be more attuned to certain things that it's that like useful insights can come from being attuned to. But ultimately, you know, you have to kind of find ways to, to translate, um, you know, those, um, you know, what you're doing into, you know, into sort of standard boring, like here's a cause and effect mechanism I'm postulating, here's my evidence for it, et cetera. And, you know, to at least, I don't know that I have an amazing argument to offer for, yes, this is the right way to think about dialectics, but at least by way of trying to make a, at least a sort of suggestive case for saying that like, yeah, right about here is probably the conceptual territory we're best off landing in. Um, you know, I, yeah, in next week's, I'm going to talk more about why I think the sort of Rorty level dismissal is unconvincing. And then, you know, in the uh, other part we haven't talked about yet of this week's, I, I get in more to, to why I think that, like, the, you know, going full Trotsky is a bad idea. Hmm. Um, well, on, on full Trotsky, do you want to talk about him talking about how A is not A and going full Parmidian? Because I, I actually have something, I think, interesting to say about it. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so so one of the very funny things about this is I don't have any particular evidence that either of them read the other, but uh, it's uh, you know I, I think I think Ayn Rand is like writing her like first novels around this time, and it is kind of amazing how much Trotsky and Ayn Rand sort of sound like each other, but with the pluses and minuses reversed. Uh, that you know Ayn Rand makes this. Uh, Nice. Uh, <laughs> a Democrat who loved Heidegger. What a what a way to summarize the man. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong, <laughs> but man, what a way to summarize the man. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you know, more interested, I suppose, than being a Democrat who loves Karl Popper or something. But um, in any case, uh, that's. So, so yeah, so so Ayn Rand uh, famously makes a really, really big deal of like saying, like you can always kind of feel her fist pounding on the table when she says it, that A is A, and she seems to think that this is this like, A is A is the sort of first- That's how we're going to own the libtards by putting that. Yeah, exactly, that right? 
A is A, take that, libtards. Exactly, that is the sense you get from it, right? If you read, like, uh, John Galt's speech at the end of Atlas Shrugged, um, that's, you know, it's like, you know, he, there is this suggestion that, like, A is A, therefore, um, you know, out of selfishness is good and you should love capitalism. Um, and, you know, I actually had, I remember uh, many years ago, I I had, um, there's somebody I used to argue with, and this is like, you know, early Obama era, uh, somebody I used to argue with on Facebook who was like a big Ayn Rand fan. And I remember that guy expressing confusion that in my academic work, I seemed to sort of defend standard logic. But uh, at the same time, I was a commie and like, how could this be? You know, because, you know, clearly if A is A and all that stuff, then, you know, then you have to be a Randian. Um, and, and then Trotsky, meanwhile, seems to be very concerned to deny that A is A and to, and to say um, that this is the sort of foundation of like the bad Aristotelian kind of logic and, you know, rejecting it, you know, allows you to... Um, uh to sort of see the you know richer insights of um you know kind of hegelian logic that you know that's that he sees as you know the foundation of dialectical materialism and um and and it's uh he makes a he makes just the weirdest argument against it um so he again he's a good writer this is all like very vivid and and kind of you know compelling on a sentence by sentence level but it's like you you take a step back you're like wait what uh the so essentially says well okay so if a is a then that would mean like a pound of sugar is a pound of sugar but uh but really uh that you know you're gonna get like from any you know moment to moment you know you're gonna get the like i don't know individual grains of, of sugar are going to shed from the pound. And so a pound of sugar is not actually a pound of sugar, you know, moment to moment. And he even says, like, he sort of anticipates the obvious response to this and says, uh, well, you know, sophists could try to say that, you know, a pound of sugar at a particular moment is identical to a pound of sugar at that particular moment. But actually he says, what do you mean moment? There's, uh, there's, there's no such, there's no such thing. There's only, if you did like a infinitesimal, you know, interval of time, it's still undergoing change over the course of that interval. And if you're talking about, you know, a sort of mathematical abstraction and what he seems to mean here is like an instant, you know, a zero duration, uh, you know, point in time, uh, then, then there just is no such thing. And, and it's the weirdest thing because I mean, it feels like when you argue for something online, and yeah. then someone points out that you're really obviously wrong, but you don't want to yeah. admit it, so you just reach further and further into like metaphysics or whatever to try and rescue yourself. Yeah, right. Yes, it does very much have that feel. But it's like so he's he's doing this, he's making this argument. Uh, like first of all, it is striking how this sort of immediate conclusion here is is just frankly metaphysical, right? It's that uh, here's here's a way that um, kind of reality of its essence, you know, works. And so he's he's arguing for these metaphysical claims that he takes to be upstream of his preferred methodological uh, conclusions. And it's like the kind of metaphysical claims he's making, I mean, ultimately the A is an A thing seems about as obviously wrong 
as anything could be to me. Um, and, you know, it's sort of the converse of the, the Ayn Rand problem that it's like Ayn Rand thinks that this is true and informative and, and Trotsky thinks it's false. It's just like, well, no, it's true. It's just the most uninteresting. It's the most uninteresting possible truth you know, maybe that you could get. I mean, nothing well, follows from this. That, that's the interesting thing that I, that I want to say. I don't know if you've read Stephen Tomlin's, Tomlin's um, The Uses of Argument. No. But he was an ordinary language philosopher from when that was a thing in the in the 40s and the 50s. And he wrote a, a what was meant to be a textbook of logic, but was like really radically different to anything else that was existed at the time, um, such that it got no take up at all in philosophy, but now is very, very popular in like sociology and whatever. Yeah. And he, he came up with the Tumlin argument form, where instead of having like minor premises, major premises and conclusions, you have grounds, which are like kind of the datum, conclusions, which have conclusions, but then warrants, which okay. are kind of the rules of inference, uh, which you get you between the grounds and the conclusions. Um, okay. And in analyzing like analytic arguments, he's like, there's something really weird going on with analytic arguments. Um, for instance, like he gives the example of, well, he first says, first off, they're very, very rare. But even if we actually like think about one, that yes, could, like, what, is, what does he mean by analytic arguments? Well, kind of like he goes through several different forms, but kind of like things which are like, in some sense, self-evident or syllogistic or, or something in, in this form. Um, like he uses the example of an argument, um, you know, all of all of Brian's sisters have red hair. Yeah. Anne is one of Brian's sisters, therefore right. Anne has red yep. hair. Yep. Um, but if you if you think about the argument and think about kind of in what circumstance you would ever make that sort of argument, there's literally no possible circumstance in which it's useful. Right. <laughs> that seems right. Yeah. If the sisters aren't in front of you, then the argument doesn't actually follow because, as Trotsky says, things change over time. As soon as Ugh. the sisters get out of your sight, their hair color can change. The, the fact that they even have hair can change. And so on uh, on anything which isn't a particular moment, an incident in time, the, the argument is useless. But also if the sisters are in front of you, surely at that point you don't need an argument to see the facts about the hair. You don't need to be looking at the other sisters to know anything about Anne's hair. And you don't need an argument about the colour of Anne's hair. You just need, like, a finger to be pointed. Yeah. I mean, I think this might be just kind of a particular example of the general phenomenon of arguments that are used as, like, illustrations in textbooks uh, tending to be ones that nobody would ever make because, like, what are the possible circumstances under which everybody would agree to these premises, but like the conclusion is in some kind of dispute, right? So no, like, I, mean, actually, I think that's kind of the, the, uh, the kind of move that Tumlin makes where he's saying, actually what we should be focused on in, in, in kind of talking about arguments is arguments where the warrant isn't kind of self-evident or where the, where the warrant actually right. needs backing. Because he says the strange thing about kind of things like this is it like he actually denies the idea that you don't just understand language if you fail to understand this sort of argument, but that you kind of fail, you fail in some other way. But that yeah. it's not really if you present that argument and someone doesn't get it, there's not much uh, you can say to them apart from just like I don't know, read it again. <laughs> there's yeah. no further facts and there's no reasons you can give. There's no backing you can give to the warrant apart from like 
well, come on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, the arguments we should be focusing on are the ones which we actually use, which are ones where the 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 warrant will need a backing, right? Uh, because those are the arguments that people will ever, you know, have a problem with. Yeah, that seems right. Um... Uh, Spencer said a while ago, society is not a traditional logical problem. Sure. But, that, but that's, of course, like awesome indictment of Trotsky making this sort of argument because there was just no reason for him to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that like, and, and there is something very funny about, you know, so I said a while ago, like we went through kind of the uh, historical context, like the, the actual political thing that the real argument was about. And then because Burnham had expressed this heretical view about dialectics um, and Trotsky seized on it to be like, oh, that's why, you, you know, that's why you guys are going wrong because you're anti-dialectics, even though Shackman actually wasn't, but whatever, Burnham was. Um, and that this is the real problem, right, that you've rejected the dialectical method. So your analysis, you know, is, is you know, it's, it's like you've lost your guidance system. You're just flying around, you know, every which way. Um, that, but like when he actually gets to the point in the essay where he connects the dots, right? Says um, like, okay, dialectics is great. You guys are wrong for rejecting, you know, dialectical method. Now, finally, we're back to arguing about the Soviet Union. Um, then it, it's kind of underwhelming, right? It's like, wait, wait a second, you needed all of that metaphysical machinery to get this? Right, that the that ultimately um, what he's uh, you know like like what he says. Um, well, it's kind of one of those things where you know when you've got a self-evident conclusion, you can put any bollocks in before that, and you can still get <laughs> the conclusion in the end. So if you make a conclusion like it's self-evidently good to conquer Estonia because they're annoying, <laughs> you can fill in whatever metaphysical stuff you wrote before then, and you can still get to the reasonable conclusion that you should invade and conquer Estonia. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I had a, uh, actually did have a friend in uh, uh, graduate school many years ago who's from Estonia, who uh, who was, was, was kind of a, you know, so it's a fun guy, but he was kind of a deeply strange right winger. And, uh, <laughs> wow, shocking. Uh, yeah. I remember, um, and he kind of had this, like he, he had this way of, um, you can kind of tell that it's like BBC World Service broadcast. It probably helped him learn English, you know. So like he had this way of talking that is like, yeah, well, you know, um, I don't know. I always remember like him, uh, you know, once accusing at a party. You know, I don't even remember what all we were arguing about, but you know, it was. Uh, argue with me and my friend Mark, who's been on the show a couple times over the years, and, you know, he's like, yes, but but you are just a, a tandem of smug fucks. <laughs> so, uh, in any case, I, uh, when he actually gets back to Estonia uh, and all that, um, uh, Trotsky says, uh, the fundamental flaw of vulgar thought lies in the fact that it wishes to content itself with motionless imprints of a reality which consists of eternal motion, Dialectical thinking gives to concepts by means of closer approximations, corrections, concretization, a, rich, a richness of content and flexibility, I would even say a succulence, 
uh, which to a certain extent brings them closer to living phenomena. Not capitalism in general, but a given capitalism and a given state of development. Not a worker state in general, but a given worker state in a backward country and an imperialist encirclement, etc. And it's like, okay, so so hold on. Um, ultimately, what are you saying here? Just that um, you know things change a lot over the course of time, and it's very important not to just sort of think about them as abstractions based on the way that they might have been at one time, but uh, to be sort of attuned to the particular characteristics that uh, they display at a particular stage of their evolution. If so, I would say yes to all of that, right? Good advice. But did we really need all that to, to get here? Did we really need this sort of heavy duty metaphysical conclusions that it just seems totally wild to me to even have an opinion on from the armchair, you know, that like, uh, are there such a thing as zero duration instance of time or only very short intervals? Like, I don't know. Isn't that a question for theoretical physicists? Uh, and this, this sort of wild denial of like a being a, you know, that like things are identical to themselves. Like, I don't think we need any of that to get to the end of the day methodological advice that he's actually trying to tie in to uh, the immediate uh, political debate. And and this is kind of, you know, and this is sort of ultimately where I land in the essay. It's like, okay, um, yes, I do think that, you know, certainly social and political reality, you know, is always moving and changing and evolving. So lots of other things, not everything necessarily, but lots of other things. Uh, and it is important to be aware of, um, you know, kind of particular concrete, you know, stages of development of things. It is important to be attuned even to sort of uh, dynamic tensions within systems that can give rise to further change in the future. Like that is a real thing about social reality that it's important to pay attention to and to take into account in your analysis of it. But none of this really seems to me to add up to anything like the idea, certainly of a dialectical logic that's different from Aristotelian logic, certainly the idea that there's this dialectical method uh, that is just totally different from any sort of methods of figuring out what's true that would be available to regular you know, bourgeois theoreticians, uh, certainly to the idea that there's um, that there's a, uh, you know, there's such a thing as a dialectical explanation of things that's different from a causal explanation and gets you off the hook of having to, you know, postulate cause and effect mechanisms and justify them with evidence and all that stuff. I mean, these these all seem like much, much, much further claims to me, right? Like, like whatever, whenever people are sort of, you know, saying reasonable things about what they mean by a dialectical method, I'm always like, yes, sure, fine. I agree with all that, right? But um, then they're saying, okay, therefore you see that we have this totally distinct intellectual technique that's different from anything else and maybe is even an alternative form of logic and certainly gets us off the hook of you know having to do certain kind of boring methodological things other people have to do or whatever. That all just seems wrong to me. It's like, no, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think so, right? I don't think that the, I don't think that you're. Um, you know, I, I think that like these kinds of, you know, even though I'm, you know, a boring centrist, 
on the dialectics question. Uh, I still, you know, I think that like when you say stuff like this, you're sort of lending plausibility to the attitude of people who are inclined to just dismiss dialectics talk in general as mm -hmm. kind of obfuscatory, you know, mystical nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 between this and kind of the Engels thing of trying to explain everything in the universe via it, which would be, it's always this thing of kind of, you know, you know, you, you almost want to go like kind of human miracle on it. Yeah. Like, you know, it would be, it would be really nice if, if Marx, while studying kind of the political economy of England, had discovered a method which can explain everything in the universe. Uh, it seems unlikely, however. It does. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's sort of as much as it would be nice. Um, I also kind of feel like the um, the claims about history and political economy could survive just fine without that um, without that assumption. Uh, when I was I, I went to like a Trotskyite meeting um, with Ashley Ashley Frawley. Yeah. And I and I made kind of this point, but then Ashley ganged up on me with the Trotskyites against me. Oh, no. Wow. Wow. Wow, Ashley. Uh, what, uh, just out of curiosity, do you know which flavor of Trotskyist? Yeah, it was, um, it's, it's a socialist party in the UK. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. The, no, yeah, I mean, they're yeah. actually quite cool. I, um, I spent quite a lot of time with them that year. Those yeah, years. The, uh, the, uh, former, the former tendency, yeah. more or less. Uh, yeah, yeah. They basically just do trade union stuff all the time. Uh, yeah. I think they're definitely the least bad Trotskyite party in the UK yeah. by a significant margin. That seems um, plausible. Yeah, there's a but, uh, yeah. there's been a lot of there's been a lot of uh, got to say a lot of the history of British Trotskyism seems like an extremely weird mess. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, they seem fine. Uh, so on next week we're just doing this again. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> the second half focusing well next week this week we've attacked we've yeah. truly attacked dialectics maybe and um, next week dialectically we're going to turn around and you know do the bravely defend it yes yes exactly um showing the contradiction in, in stefan and ben <laughs> exactly uh i saw by the way uh you might not be able to pull it up because because i think it's the uh i think it's my chat but uh I saw Charles Wolford saying he wanted to argue about this, but he also missed some of the stream. So watch the rest of the stream and then decide whether you want to and get in touch with me. But uh, in any case, I, I, I can get everything. The only thing I can't do is I can't post in your chat. Okay, I see. So it's this kind of thing. If I want to respond to someone in your chat, it has to be yeah, on actually screen. Pull it up I, on I screen. respond with my voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, uh, sounds good. Well, uh, yeah. More dialectics next week. Hold on. We need to find the outro. <laughs> <laughs>